Welcome to episode 0000177 of the mission. Uh, my name is Daniel James. I'm going to be a host through to eight o'clock this evening. Uh, that, of course, was uh, Uncle Jack Charles singing Son of Mine, a song full of truths and something that he always did. We'll get to him a little bit more in a minute, but I wanted to thank uh, Billy Shears for an excellent episode of uh, Double Bounce. It's always good to hear Billy on the airwaves. Thank you, Billy. And uh, I want to acknowledge where I'm broadcasting from, which is Radio City Dockland, which is on the Wurundjeri land, the Kulin Nations, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present, and I pay my respects to any mob that are listening in this evening. Uh, as I just alluded to, we fared well Uncle Jack Charles today in what was an extraordinarily beautiful and powerful ceremony, just like the man himself. Uh, it was just and it was profound and it's what the, the man deserved. He, he, like so many other members of the Stolen Generations, were, was just a man that was so generous in his spirit, so profound in his insights into human nature and into the systems that shaped his life and have shaped so many other lives. And it's just a reminder now that we are actually getting to a point where members of the Stolen Generations are starting to become few and far between. And while we still have, thankfully, numerous members of the Stolen Generations with us, we should remind ourselves to thank them, to thank them for correcting the record of this country for being brave enough to share their stories, to share their insights and to be vulnerable. They didn't do it for any sort of, you know, financial gain, although that they do and are owed reparations for what they went through, of which I'm glad to say some people of the stolen generations received before they passed away because so many didn't. And Uncle Jack was a member of that stolen generations. He was one of the first people, if he was the first person to present to the Uruk Justice Commission to tell us his story, to get it down on the record. And that is now down on the record forever and will become an integral part of the treaty process. And it started with him telling the truth as he always did. And when I think about other members of the Stolen Generations, the ones that I've been honoured and uh, have had the pleasure to know throughout my lifetime, it's always occurred to me that the process of truth-telling, sharing their stories about what happened to them in quite often graphic detail is also a part of their healing I was very fortunate uh, today to have a conversation with uh, Auntie Lorraine Peters. She is 84 years of age now, and she was um, she is a member of the Stolen Generations and a long-time friend of Uncle Jack, and so she is mourning just like the rest of us. But in that conversation, which is available on another radio station, um, she affirmed to me and, and to the audience that how healing it can be for Stolen Generations members to tell the truth about what happened. It could be cathartic, it could be traumatic, but at the end of the day, it's not only an act of generosity, but it's also in many ways an act of healing for members of that generation. 
And we mustn't forget that. And when we look at the lives of people like Uncle Jack Charles and Uncle Archie Roach, we must remember how brave they were, how vulnerable they were to opening up to us when they didn't have to, because for a long time, for huge periods of their lives, no one was listening. And so we thank them for creating the audience to create the atmosphere that allowed these stories to come out and for allowed, allowed other people to follow in their footsteps. And in terms of the life work of people like Uncle Jack and Uncle Archie, I have no doubt whatsoever that younger generations are now ready, willing, and most importantly, able to pick up the gauntlet that they've thrown down to take their lives' work forward and to continue to improve outcomes for their people. One thing I really noted today about the uh, state service for, for Uncle Jack it was I travelled in and around the city a fair bit today and it felt like the city was coming together. It didn't feel like just a, a mob funeral. It felt like people from all walks of life were coming together to celebrate Uncle Jack's life. But also it just, I don't know, maybe I'm being too verbose, but it just felt a little like we're ready to turn the page. We're ready to walk around a new corner and start a new journey. It just seems like we're on the precipice of some dramatic change in this nation. And without the likes of Uncle Jack, we would be nowhere near that because he let us all in. So, uh, so long, Uncle Jack. We will miss you, but we will never forget you. Uh, on to uh, tonight's show, I've just got the one guest this evening, and it's uh, Thomas Mayer, uh, a friend of the show. Uh, it's an extended conversation. He's got a new book coming out called uh, Finding the Heart of the Nation, a second edition of the first book he released, I think it was about five years ago, in 2017. Uh, we talk a lot about uh, the Uluru Statement. We talk about what it's like being central, a central part of the national dialogue around the voice department, which Th Thomas finds himself a part of. And we talk about any aspirations that he has. Um, I just wanted to point out that um, I don't want to use this show to push any particular line when it comes to The Voice or to the statement from the heart, although I am a supporter of The Voice and the statement myself. But I do want to get a range of views. And so we started off here with, with Thomas, but I'm open to having people on the show that oppose The Voice to hear from them, to hear what their perspectives are. But for tonight... Um, we've got Thomas Mayer, one of The Voice's uh, great uh, proponents. So uh, stick around. Um, there is a text line that you can contact me with. Uh, it's 0466981027. So let's get on with the show live from Radio City Docklands. This is The Mission. Uncle Archie Roach there with It's Not Too Late. It is 14 past seven this Tuesday evening. Listen to The Mission. On 102.73 Triple R FM. Uh, look, let's get to um, our first and only guest tonight, uh, Thomas Mayer. Now, this uh, extended discussion is over two parts. So, um, if you, uh, I'm very conscious of not uh, burdening you, the listener, with um, too much of a, an earworm or too much uh, of a, a monotonous conversation. Although it's not, it's a very interesting discussion. But it's always good to have a breather. I find in most things. So Thomas is uh, a Torres Strait Islander man born on Lokia country 
in Darwin. He's been a wharf labourer from the age of 17 until he became a union official for the Maritime Union of Australia in his early 30s. He applied the skills he picked up as a unionist and negotiated to advance the rights of Indigenous peoples, becoming a signatory to the Uluru Statement of the Heart. And since then, he has been a tireless campaigner for The Voice and for everything else that surrounds the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Now, like I said, um, this is a conversation about many things, but there is also a, a, a lengthy bit of this conversation that is about the process that was taken to arrive at the statement and where Thomas and others who are advocates for the statement want to take it. Um, he's authored uh, a new edition of his book, Finding the Heart of the Nation. It's the second edition, and he's added a lot more uh, first-hand and first-personal experiences of people that were involved in the Uluru Dialogues and people that will remain involved as we head towards what will be a referendum sometime between now and July next year, I believe. Just dropped my uh, earbud. Excuse me while I put it back in. So uh, let's get to the conversation. Um, I spoke to him earlier this morning from World Triple R headquarters. Thomas Mayer, welcome back to NAM. Yeah, good to be here, brother. Uh, we'll get to your uh, book shortly, Finding the Heart of the Nation. But um, you're actually one of the reasons you're in Melbourne today is um, because of the uh, state service for Uncle Jack Charles. Um, you got any reflections on the man himself and, uh, you know... The impact that he's had on you and, and people around you and people in our community. Oh, he was a great man, you know, and uh, it's. Uh, I think it's important to come and honour his life. Uh, he certainly influenced a lot of people with his story and his, uh, you know, the way that he was able to communicate and move people. And uh, it's going to be a very moving service today. Yeah, it is. Um, I've heard some of the organisers talk on um, another radio station this morning about. What they've got planned, and um, it's 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 obviously bound to be moving because we've lost a great man. But um, I think it's going to be also fairly cathartic as well. This will go to air after the service, of course. But um, yeah, it's, um, uh, he demanded no less than a state funeral, apparently. So yeah. <laughs> that is so in keeping with uh, with the man himself. Um, look, there is a lot going on at the moment in terms of you know, the work that you're doing in particular around the Uluru Statement from, from the Heart and this book, the uh, second edition of Finding the Heart of the Nation, um, you look to use this as a, as, as a tool to clarify some of, I guess, the mess, mist, um, I guess, misdemeanours, the, the, the false equivalences around the representation that led to, to the voice. What was your primary aim in, in putting out a second edition? Well, it was important to update um, the book because we've moved on over the last five years. We've had two successive governments uh, refuse to implement the Uluru Statement, uh, you know, uh, dismissing it on the basis of misinformation about what we're calling for being a third chamber or uh, all of those types of uh, of of attempts to conserve the status quo, and we've overcome that. Uh, we convinced the Labor government over the last five years, uh, you know, the, the, the opposition at the time, that they should support this. And then Albanese, in his 
victory speech, didn't miss it. The first thing he talked about was implementing the Uluru Statement in full, and every speech that he makes is a commitment to this referendum to finally guarantee that Indigenous people are heard in our own right, mm. you know, not people that are self-appointed, you know, like Warren Mundine that, uh, you know, wants to conserve that status quo of him being the voice for Indigenous people, but giving our people, our grassroots people, the opportunity to choose who speaks for us, you know, to break through or to end the division that has been, you know, purposely, uh, you know, a tactic against us. Mm. And, uh, and to establish a representative body. Um, and, uh, you know, with that commitment, with the government uh, that supports this now, I thought it important to update the book to help people to understand where we are and how to support this campaign. It, um, the, the, the forces, the gathering forces of opposition to, to the statement now that we have a government that's committed to taking it to a referendum and, um, you know, if the referendum's successful establishing it, seem to be coming more and more sort of organised. Um, you mentioned um, uh, Warren Mundine there. Um, you're actually in the process of writing an op-ed at the moment um, taking some of those conservative forces head-on in terms of the messaging that they're putting in around their opposition to, to the statement. Well, what, what sort of message do you have for, for them and, and their followers? Well, you know, they, they've been saying that this isn't something that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people want. You know, they're saying that this is woke politics, uh, that there'll be no practical uh, effect mm. of establishing a representative body. I mean, that in itself is just ridiculous. I mean, here we are, these commentators that are very loud, always contributing to the debate, you know, with their toxicity uh, in a in a representative, you know, in a representative uh, uh, democracy, you know, where voices are really important. Yeah. Uh, influencing decision makers in parliament is very important. It affects housing. It affects, you know, uh, the justice system, all of these things that we fight for, which is why the voice is a very practical reform. Um, and they're saying that these things after the most, uh, you know, just an unprecedented consensus of our people, a national consensus. Well, talk, let's talk about that consensus, right? So that is a criticism that is often, often bandied about around the, the, the Uluru Statement from the Heart and the process that was taken to get to that particular statement. Just re-explain for people that, that probably um, uh, need to hear it or are unaware of the process, but what was the process to get to the statement? So when people say... Um, uh, the statement is not representative of Aboriginal people. What measures were put into place to make sure that it actually was as representative as it can be? Yeah, well, to describe the history of the Uluru Statement and, and how we got to to that consensus would be a, a quite a long talk. I mean, it's a history of it's a history of representative bodies that we've established many a times over the last hundred years that have been silenced. Firstly. Uh, that is a lesson that goes into the Uluru Statement. It's a history of statements and petitions that all called for political representation, all of them called for a voice, all of them dismissed. And that's another piece of why the Uluru Statement is what it is. And then there was the fight by our people when, uh, the, when ATSIC was destroyed. 
And in the absence of a voice, we saw the Northern Territory intervention. We saw hundreds of millions of dollars cut from community services. We saw money meant for the benefit of Indigenous people going to non-Indigenous organisations that fought against our rights using our money. Uh, these are the things that happened without a voice. And then in 2015, in that crisis, with the gap widening, we called for a meeting with the Prime Minister and the Opposition Leader and it happened in Kirribilli House, and the Kirribilli Statement was made. That yep. was 2015. And the Kirribilli Statement said, we're not interested in symbolic constitutional recognition. We want fairness and empowerment, and we want a referendum council to be established to take the question to our people for the first time about how we want to be recognised. The referendum council ran 13 regional dialogues. There was a formula to the 100 participants to ensure that it wasn't just the loudest people, you yeah. know, the loudest Indigenous people that are practised at being heard and getting their way in the room. It ensured that the quieter advocates were there. It ensured that there was a safe space as much as possible for debate and discussion. And they all had accurate records of meetings that went with delegates that were elected to the heart of the country at Uluru where we did the hard work over three days to reach that consensus because consensus requires listening. It requires, you know, a, a you know, reciprocity. Yep. Um, it requires uh, a willingness to compromise amongst those that are to be united on what we're going to say. And, of course, not all of us, uh, you know, demonstrated those qualities, you know, of consensus building, but a great, great majority of our people did that hard work and that is how the Uluru Statement was made. Now, was it a perfect process? Of course it wasn't. There's no such thing as a perfect process. Do the critics of that process have a plan to run a better process? No, they don't. And so, you know, if, if we were to hold back on the basis of, you know, a bureaucratic argument about a process, then we would never move forward. And... It's time, you know, this is, this is a, a, a wonderful... The reform is what people should concentrate on. Mm -hmm. Does a voice, a representative body, advance our people in a representative democracy where we have been so sorely divided by the forces that want to exploit us and our land? Absolutely, it does advance us. One of the other criticisms that um, is coming across at the moment, and I think it's a criticism that will continue to happen no matter how much detail... Um, uh, people and the government actually provide. But one of the criticisms is, well, we're waiting to see the detail. Uh, where's the detail on what the voice will look like? What, 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 what's it going to... What's it going to be, pretty much? And now, that's probably a question that um, is really important for, for those Australians that aren't familiar with the process yet, but there are uh, a number of people that are extremely familiar with the process, um, particularly in the opposition, and what they keep saying is, well, we want to see the detail. What detail do they need to, to see and what detail is there that doesn't exist at the moment that will exist in the future? What, what can you say to those types of questions? Well, one of the benefits of this being on the back of decades of work is that all the detail's there. Mm the solutions are already there. The work has been done once again. I mean, of course, there's decisions about that final detail, but, I mean, what's so unusual? What, pe what don't people understand about a representative body? We're not talking about 800,000 blackfellas going to Canberra every week, you know, yeah. or every sittings. That's not what we're talking about. That's ridiculous. Um, we're talking about... Uh, and the principles were put out recently, actually. So that detail is there about this being a, a representative body with gender balance... 
Uh, it'll be a representative body chosen by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, so not appointed by a Prime Minister, uh, for example. Uh, it is a representative body that will speak to our common interests, you know, across our communities. It would not, uh, you know, uh, impose itself on local decision-making. Uh, these are the principles that um, people do need to know, mm -hmm. and they're already out there. There was a communique from uh, the referendum working group recently. But the simplest uh, answer to that is that it's a voice to influence the decisions that are made about us, to bring our people together in, in a representative way, and to recognise over 60,000 years of continuous culture, that we're still here and we are a people that deserve to be heard in our own right. There's been some opposition to the idea of the voice too from the left, uh, particularly those within the Greens, particularly uh, Senator Lydia Thorpe, who came out last week and said that she won't be opposing um, the, the voice in a campaign sense. She won't be campaigning against it. Um, what have, what have you made of the Greens' stance on the, the voice? Well, the Greens were brilliant uh, when the Uluru Statement was made. They were the first party to come out with formal support for the Uluru Statement uh, and all of those elements of it, voice, treaty, truth. Um, it's unfortunate that they have tried to uh, rearrange the Uluru Statement somewhat and... Uh, you know, prioritise treaty first. And it's just a matter of uh, logic uh, there. You know, there's a, there's a missing uh, bit of thinking there. I mean, we did a lot of thinking, you know, and a lot of debate and discussion about the strategy at Uluru. Uh, you never... And I'm a trade unionist. Yeah. I'm a wharfie. Uh, I was a delegate on the wharves in Darwin for 16 years, uh, an official for over, for around uh, 10 years now. Uh, I've negotiated many agreements across many different parts of the maritime industry. Uh, you never get a good agreement before you establish a representative body. I just don't understand. I would never say to workers, all you need is an agreement with the boss. That's all you need. Let's not talk about what's in that agreement or how you're going to build leverage or building a representative structure with which to coherently negotiate what we want. I mean, that's basically what the Greens are saying. It's good to hear that Lydia has, um, you know, confirmed that she won't support a no case. Um, I hope that she uh, will passionately support a yes vote and, uh, you know, and we'll keep talking to her and, and hope that that's the decision that she makes. You're listening to The Mission uh, on Tuesday night on 102.7, 3 FM. Uh, my name is Daniel. I'm speaking with Thomas Mayer about many things, but primarily his uh, new book, Finding the Heart of the Nation, which is available in all good stores. It's the second edition. It's out through Hardy Grant. Uh, we might just take a break um, and then come back after this. Black Rock Band with Mauler. Lovely song. It's uh, 27 to 8. You're listening to The Mission on Triple R, or perhaps you're listening nationwide on the National Indigenous Radio Service. Wherever you're listening, I hope you're having a relaxed yet informative time of it all. Uh, I just played the first half of my uh, interview with uh, Thomas Mayer that I pre recorded this morning at Triple uh, R World Headquarters on Wurundjeri land. Um, let's just jump straight into the second part of the conversation and uh, I'll see you at the end. Thomas May, you found yourself in the robust rumble and tumble of 
the national conversation around First Nations matters now for at least five years, like right within the, the, the broader discussion, the federal discussion around what's going to happen with the voice, happen with Indigenous representation and, and happen beyond the establishment of a voice. How have you found being, not thrust into that, but being a part of that? What's what's that like? Because it seems to me from a step back, just totally and utterly relentless. Yeah, well, you don't get the type of change that we're calling for, you know, which is to, to change the structure of this nation, you know, the political structure of this nation to guarantee Indigenous people a voice without being relentless. Mm. Uh, when the government, uh, you know, back in 2017 dismissed what we called for, we just didn't take no for an answer. And I just, I guess I was so, I was so pissed off at the disrespect that was shown to to our people that had suspended their disbelief that we could make change and did the hard work of consensus building to have that, you know, and have that uh, thrown in their face. Um, I mean, on, on paper, you would have thought that Malcolm Turnbull would have been the Conservative Prime Minister that would have accepted the voice and put a bit of energy into it, but his outright rejection and then misrepresentation of what the voice was was... Um, I found sort of deeply offensive. It was deeply offensive, you know, and we just couldn't cop that. We, you know, we, we actually did a lot of organising work. We went to his electorate. We took the Uluru statement there. We talked to the voters in his electorate. Uh, we did the same thing when Morrison was Prime Minister. We went to Cronulla, to Cronulla Mall, and people said, you're crazy, that's where to the, the race riots To the Shire. Yeah, you're going there to talk about, you know, uh, this Indigenous matters. But you know what I found on the streets? You know, we, we found that people generally were responsive in a positive way. There's been so much work done, you know, I'm sure by a lot of your listeners, uh, you know, on this radio station to do truth-telling and to work on reconciliation, and that's that's really having an effect out there. I think um, one of the benefits we have with the Triple R audience um, and one of the advantages we have down here in Victoria is the treaty process that's happening down here and the, the Europe Justice Commission, the truth-telling process, that mm. it's sitting, sitting alongside that. Um, so uh, people that listen to this show, I think, are pretty au fait with how important truth-telling is and, and how it will inform what goes beyond that in any terms in terms of any sort of um, formal formal structural sense around around treaties and, and the like. Um, there are calls federally for for a treaty, and um, uh, people are very uh, strong on, on on getting that treaty. Um, would the voice itself act as a potential mechanism for the negotiation of a treaty? down the track? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look at what's happened in Victoria here. Uh, you know, the first thing that was established uh, was, a, was a representative body. Yeah. You know, you again, you cannot do negotiations unless you establish a representative body. Otherwise, you're a rebel. Simple bargaining, you know, negotiation 101. Uh, and what an important piece to treaty here in Victoria and nationally is uh, a national voice, you know, a strong national voice that isn't sensitive to being, you know, silenced like all the other voices, ATSIC, for example, before. Yeah. And so um, the I'll put it this way. I'm sure a lot of your listeners would understand this, but it's like, it's like doing an agreement with a middle manager 
you know, in a workplace and the CEO is up there and, you know, not a part of the negotiations, can change anything that you agree with the middle manager anytime he wants. I mean, that's what we're looking at here. Yeah. Um, we, we must uh, establish the means to negotiate with the federal government, the Commonwealth, about what their obligation is to treaties in the states. That's not only about getting, you know, a full log of claims or, or the best possible outcomes uh, in treaty in Victoria, but it's also about protecting what is eventually agreed here because all laws must be consistent with federal laws. Federal government holds a majority of the purse and can leverage and, you know, so... And I just want to say this as well, brother, about treaty. Some people say, you know, all we need is a treaty, you know, like it's it's going to lead to peace. And I mean, you just have to look at the rest of the world where mob have done, you know, First Nations people have got treaties. Treaty is not an end. It's a, it's a beginning to a whole lot more legal and political wrangling to see that what is promised is delivered. And again, a strong constitutionally empowered voice is important. When I say constitutionally empowered, I'm saying empowered by the Australian people because yeah. that's you know because it's through a referendum and that holds great power. And of course, the you know the fact that it will be enshrined in the constitution means that uh, no government can come along and just abolish it um, with the uh, swipe of a pen like John Howard did with Attic. Um, we were talking across the the, the road um, before we came here. Uh, for this discussion, and I asked you about um, uh, your interest in pursuing politics. You're a you're a warfare, You're you're a trade unionist. You've been a delegate. You're heavily involved with the um, the ALP in the Northern Territory. On paper, you're now involved in um, a national discussion and in in some ways leading a national debate on constitutional reform. Don't know whether you thought you would have been doing that when you were a young fella. <laughs> Definitely not. I was such a quiet bloke, you know. Um, uh, do you have an interest in pursuing a political career? No, I don't. Uh, it's not not an ambition. I mean, I I couldn't imagine going to functions. I mean, this is very different to being a politician. You know, I'm fighting for something that I believe in. Uh, and I can say what I want in, in that campaign. You know, uh, I enjoy uh, representing workers. I enjoy working for the union movement, but I couldn't imagine being a politician and having to go to events every night. And, you know, yeah. it's just it's not an ambition. As we talk about, brother, I love writing and all that. Um, at the same time, though, you know, I guess I've learned over the years that you never say never. You're a different person, you know, in... in you know, each decade to, yeah. to what you were, and and who knows? But it's not an ambition. Yeah, it's um, it's something that you have to really, really, really want. I would imagine to go into politics at any level, but particularly state or federal politics. It's something that you can't be ambivalent about. It's something that you have to really, really want. And I have you know huge admiration for people that go into it and stick to it and. and take all the barbs that are thrown at them day in, day out. So um, I totally sympathise with you there because I've often been asked that question. So, you know. Yeah, it's interesting, though. You listen to some uh, some people, you know, elders that talk about this and uh, sometimes, uh, well, you hear it's a regret, you mm. know, that mm. uh, they that could have well? had more yeah. influence if they were in politics. Yeah. 
Uh, and, you know, I mean, that's something that I think about. I think it's a healthy thing that a person doesn't want to go into politics, that goes into <laughs> politics, uh, you know, with a, with a purpose. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's an ambition again, but uh, it's interesting to think about. I think Noel Pearson's been one of those people that has sort of ruminated over the years about whether he should have or should not have gone into to politics. I know that, you know, Paul Keating had the view of slotting him into the seat that uh, Julia Gillard had with the view of him becoming the first Indigenous Australian Prime Minister. Um, and it's interesting to hear him sort of talk about it now. You know, he's, he's still very much in two minds. You know, would he have made more of a difference if he was inside the tent as opposed to agita agitating out, outside of it? So mm. I just reckon with you, we'll just watch this space myself. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, you say that you're really enjoying the writing. Um, you, you've actually been quite prolific um, over the last three or four years. I mean, you had uh, the first iteration of uh, uh, Finding the Heart of the Nation, and then you had the, the children's version of it, and then you had Dear Son, which was an anthology on, I guess, Indigenous male masculinity, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, so it's five books if you count the second edition as a different book. Um, yeah. And it is different. It's paperback. It's got yep. new chapters and simple explanations of things. Um, but uh, I think my proudest work is still Dear Son. It's it's the one that hasn't done as well as the rest. Uh, you know, it's had quite poor sales. And I, I wonder about that. I wonder if people think that it's, you know, because it's Dear Son, it's only for men, you know, um, rather than for everybody. Mm. Um but uh, it's my proudest work because I just think it's it's such an important thing to talk about, you know, uh, as a celebration of, of Indigenous men that goes against that stereotype. Uh, and and uh, though it's had poor sales, the, it's been the most special book also because uh, I've, I've often had men come to me and say, or, or sons, you know, say that um, they have been moved by it to, mm. you know, uh, try to re-establish a relationship or to do things differently. I've had some uh, young fathers say they're reading it with their, their, their son that's only six years old, you know, mm. like it's, it's, I never expected that. Yeah. And it's, it's actually the letters in it, you know, by Stan Grant, Joe Williams, uh, um, uh, Troy Cassadaly and a whole lot of, you know, uh, Indigenous men that no one's heard of and had written for the first time, they're all quite gentle but still, you know, strong and, and so young people have been able to enjoy it too. So what are you working on at the moment in terms of writing? Um, I mean, you're on the uh, the book tour for, for, for this. What, what are you actually putting pen to paper about at the moment? Yeah, well, the second edition comes out... Uh, what tomorrow? Wow! <laughs> Finding the heart of the nation. So I'm I'm still working on others. I've got um, a children's book that I'm writing with the son of the creator of the Torres Strait flag, and and so that's about the Torres Strait flag. We thought that this was uh, something that people needed to to learn about. Um, they were unaware of of the flag, uh, and Mugabala is going to publish that. So we thought oh, it was great. you know an indigenous uh, publisher, and um, and also I'm going to do a, a much uh, even even simpler uh, explanation of uh, the importance of a voice. It's almost like a, a handbook of, of memes. Uh, uh, it's very early days and mm -hmm. I've got a very short time frame to write this one, but I'm doing it. And one last thing, you said that once, um, you know, if the referendum is successful and, and we do have a voice, that you wanted to stick around as long 
as possible to make sure that the whole thing didn't become a, a, a giant bureaucracy unto itself. What, what do you mean by that? Oh, well, you know, as far as ambitions for politics or whatever, the only thing that I, I, I really think I'll, I'll do, besides continuing to be uh, a union leader, because I, I do enjoy uh, working for my union, is, um, is to help the voice be effective, you know, and I think I've got something to offer there. Uh, it should be a, uh, you know, it should campaign where it needs to, you know, if, if, our, if what we say is ignored, and this is the great um, hope that I've always had for this, um, because I've organised the rallies and actions and I've seen how disjointed um, they can be and, and how they don't, they, it just doesn't hold the decision makers to account. Um, we, we, can't, we must do better. And the voice is a way of doing this better, and I want to help make sure that happens. Well, thanks for coming into the studio. You're actually my first studio guest um, post-pandemic. Um, I've had a couple really? of co-hosts, but you're the first um, rigid each guest that we've had. Um, <laughs> my last one was probably about two and a half, maybe three years ago now. Um, incredible. Wow. Um, so Finding the Heart of the Nation, second edition, is out tomorrow in all bookshops. It's a uh, paperback and it's out through uh, Heidi Grant. Do yourself a favour and get it and um, keep yourself informed. So when you go to a tedious dinner party and someone uh, mentions the voice and uh, any sort of counter-arguments to it, um, you're informed through the work of people like Thomas Mayer. Thomas Mayer, thank you very much for coming on the mission. Thank you, brother. Well, that's it for another episode of the mission that, of course, was Uncle Jimmy Little with... Yorta Yorta Man, and before that, we heard Aunt Kukutra Edwards with a beautiful song called uh, Singing Up Country, which was released last year. I urge you to go and check it out. It's so beautiful. Why Uncle isn't a household name is beyond me. He was magnificent today at Uncle Jack's funeral, and uh, he remains magnificent. Um, thank you to Thomas Mayer for um, a lovely extended uh, yarn that we had. Uh, I hope you found it enjoyable and informative. I've really enjoyed bringing the show to you this evening. I'm going to take uh, a couple of weeks off coming up. I'm a little bit spent and I've got some edits to do on a bit of writing that uh, I have going on at the moment. So I'm sure uh, Hornsby uh, and the station will find someone fabulous to fill in during my absence um, just want to send a shout out to to uh, people on Yorta Yorta Country at the moment, ranging all the way from the Rupner up to Achuka, Delinquent, and Barmer, and you know everyone up there is safe and sound. We are living in times that weather events and climatic change provides us with unprecedented tragedies. Uh, I think the Dungala, the Murray River, is expected to reach 96 metres at Chuka um, tomorrow or the next day. And that would be uh, a record for uh, recorded history. So I hope everyone's safe and sound up there. Uh, coming up next is Damien Lawler, uh, listen, filling in for Superfluity. Uh, listen to him last week. His show is fabulous. Um, so stick around. Um, until I speak to you next, uh, stay safe, stay strong, and stay listening. Ta-da. Oh